You're listening to the Infidelity and Beyond podcast. Each week, we talk about topics that focus on not only surviving, but thriving after being betrayed by a partner or spouse. It can be one of the most traumatic and lonely times of your life, and that's why we're here. So welcome. This is your safe space. A ruckus, a row, a commotion, a fuss, an uproar, a state or situation where people may be angry or upset. It was a typical work day for me. A Tuesday in July, I was driving along Beach Road in Melbourne, grateful that the traffic wasn't too bad and that it actually wasn't too cold that day. July in Melbourne can be absolutely brutal. I was on my way to run a two-hour workshop for a client. My mind was half on the road and half on the questions I'd be asking in the workshop. Now, 20 people were due to attend and you don't muck around with the time of 20 people. Every minute of the workshop needs to be structured and relevant. And something I'd learned over the many years of being a facilitator, the temperature of the room needs to be perfect. So I made a mental note to check the thermostat while I was setting up. As logistics whirled through my head, I absentmindedly accepted a call through my car's Bluetooth. Hello, I said. Is that Kate? Yes, it is. Are you alone right now? Yes, I am. Your husband is having an affair. And all of a sudden, it wasn't such a typical working day. Now, the caller informed me that my husband was dating a woman on Ashley Madison. Now, for those of you lucky enough not to know what Ashley Madison is, it is a website designed to facilitate cheating. So their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. I kid you not. Now, at first, I didn't believe it. I told them calmly that I'd been married for 25 years and trusted my my husband 100% and that they would need to provide me some form of proof. Yet my mind and my heart were racing. I could feel my heart trying to escape from my chest. I was breathing heavily, yet breathless. A full body flush exploded upwards from my stomach, turning my face bright red and searingly hot before it felt like it erupted into my brain. Now, in a daze, I heard the caller promise to send me the email address my husband was using, and I kept on driving, feeling pretty sick, basically with a deep, gut-wrenching nausea that would be my constant companion for weeks to come. Now, they sent me through the email address a few minutes later and and it made my heart sink as it was a reference to one of my husband's sporting heroes. But yes, I went to the clients and I ran that bloody workshop. Sometimes I even surprise myself how strong I can be. But I did forget to check the thermostat though. So I ran the workshop, went home, And luckily, no one else was at home. So that afternoon, I accessed my husband's personal laptop. Now, he was currently in London helping his dad move house and wasn't due home for a couple of days. We had been married for 25 years and actually together for 30. So we knew each other's passwords. Nothing was hidden. I'd never snooped on his devices before, though. So I felt absolutely awful doing it. But what I found made me feel even worse. And I did not believe that would have been possible. Yes, there was a secret email account. Yes, he was sleeping with Kathleen. But wait, there was more, a lot more. 
He had been doing this for over a year, and Kathleen was just the tip of the iceberg. Feverishly, I accessed his Ashley Madison account, found his profile, and saw the hundreds and hundreds of messages from other women, some of whom he'd met and slept with. And just when I felt it couldn't get worse, there were recent messages that he'd been sending that week to a woman whilst he was in London. And he was very interested in Kathy in the little yellow bathing suit, and she was giving as good as she got. Again, another wave of nausea overcame me. Another thing is I spent hours scrolling through message upon message from these women. I found out that he had an app that helped hide messages, but it was a bit glitchy. So he devised a process where he'd have the women's name in his mobile that looked like a work contact. And when she wanted to chat, she'd send through a message about a proposal for work. Every new email I read, the sicker I felt. Even more so, remembering I had seen a message like the proposal one a few weeks beforehand and told him it was okay if he needed to make a call, even if it was interrupting stuff we were doing. It made me feel so small and so stupid for trusting him. Now, do you know that headachey feeling you get when you've been scrolling on your phone too long? Well, eventually I got so sick and tired of reading these messages and the new revelations I just had to stop because I felt fuzzy and queasy, like I'd overdose on something. So I took a bunch of screenshots for evidence and logged off. Now, this was to be the first and the last time I did this. So I have no idea if he'd ever done it before or the full extent of what he'd been up to. But really, did I even want to know any more? I could never unknow what I'd already knew already, and that was bad enough. Now, my husband was due home in a, in a few days. So we had three kids, a girl aged 22, a girl aged 15, and a boy who was 10 at the time. And we all thought we had a perfect life. And to top it all off, as is the way of these things, we had just welcomed a 16-year-old exchange student into our house for six weeks. <laughs> Yay! My head was spinning. What the hell was I going to do? Now, what I would do and continue to do over probably the next two and a half years whilst I recovered from this bombshell was to be practical and purposeful. Now, I'm well known for being able to separate my emotions and my actions to the point that some people find it disconcerting, but it serves me very well. And that was my saving grace for my ruckus period. Now, previously, I've talked before about the three phases of my recovery, the ruckus, the response and the recovery and the rebuild. Now, whilst they are not all linear and some days you can actually bounce around in all three, it does help to define not only what's going on, but how best to protect yourself and work through that situation. Now, we're talking about the ruckus today and I define the ruckus as that initial finding out phase and your immediate reactions and response. So this is sort of around the first eight to 12 weeks or so. It's that crisis situation where your fight, flight or freeze response kicks in. And it's made even stranger by the fact that during the ruckus, it's typical that you don't talk about it much with others who aren't in your inner circle and sometimes not even with them. Now, I obviously had to hold it together for the next six weeks as our exchange students stayed with us. 
the girl was halfway across the world, away from her parents for the first time, and her second language being English. So one of the very first absolute decisions I remember making, like one of those non-negotiables that's going to happen this way, was that she and our kids were not going to know anything was wrong while she was with us. Now, I went about my life for the next couple of days on autopilot when people were around and then a blubbering mess when I was alone. It was one of those times late one night when I was in the back room of our house sitting on a beanbag and crying silently when my eldest daughter walked in on me. Now she immediately knew something was very wrong and I just came out with it. Dad's been having an affair and I told her everything I knew. She was devastated She had been very close to her dad her whole life and trusted him 100% like the rest of us. Now, I didn't intend on telling her that day, and I don't remember how long we talked, but I do remember how exhausted I was at the end of it. I kissed her goodnight, I gave her a hug, and I told her I loved her, and then I went to bed. Not to sleep, as it happens, because that is not a luxury of the betrayed, but to ruminate and to think. Now, whilst I don't condone violence, I have heard stories of women destroying their partner's favorite leather jacket or throwing their clothes out on the footpath. And I always felt that I would do something like that if ever I was found myself in that situation. But the interesting thing is, is that the majority of people I've spoken to haven't done any of this and neither did I. I was so focused on making sure everything was okay for me and the kids that I just didn't have the headspace for it. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this story is that you may get pressure from others to do something. Well-meaning friends will ask you what you've done and say things like, if it was me, I'd do X, Y, and Z. And I used to be that friend, so sorry <laughs> to my friends. Um, and But the thing is, it's not them. It's you. So you do you. Don't feel the pressure to do or say anything that you don't want to, good or bad. This is your ruckus, soon to be your recovery journey. And it's all about you. Now, likewise, if you do do something that perhaps you aren't proud of yourself for doing, just be kind to yourself. This is probably one of the toughest times of your life. Now, the key to all of this, and this is a message I will be saying in probably every single podcast that I will be making, is that the key to it is taking care of yourself. I would add that your kids are probably a very close second, but remember what they say about your oxygen mask in a plane. Put yours on first before helping others, otherwise you're no good to anyone. Now, the days that followed me finding out are a blur now, but a few things stand out. My physical response was textbook flight, flight or freeze and shock. I felt physically sick to the stomach for weeks, and I could only eat salty or bland food. So Vegemite was my absolute saviour. I couldn't sleep, and I would grab fitful naps at random times of the day to keep going. And I couldn't just concentrate on anything. And that was probably due to the lack of food and sleep and my head feeling spacey all the time. Now, when we are faced with a crisis, our fight, flight, and response kicks in. And that means that adrenaline courses through our body. It's a physical response. Our brain switches to survival mode, a deep physical and psychological response. But whilst this is a well-honed, 
biological response that has allowed the human race to survive, it's not a great place to make long-term rational decisions from. So living in the ruckus, working through the ruckus, getting to the other side of the ruckus is all about first aid, intensive care for your heart and your mind. In first aid, there's a process to go through to administer effective help. And I've just redone my first aid um, certificate last week, so I can tell you it's D-R-S-A-B-C-D. So danger, response, send for help, airway, breathing, circulation, defibrillation. See, I was listening. And the reason they teach this that it that way is that they understand that survival and creating the best opportunity to be well as possible later is that you need to address the most critical issue first before moving on to the next. It's exactly the same with the ruckus. Questions of if you're going to stay together, where will you live, what's it going to mean for your plans to build a pool in the summer are not the focus right now. So what I've done for this episode is to put a list of things together. So some tips from my experience and from talking to others about what we did in the ruckus that helped us and some stuff that didn't. So try to avoid. So number one, the absolute must, 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 I will tell you to do no matter what your situation is, go and see your GP, go see your doctor. Make sure you are healthy in terms of sexually transmitted diseases. Don't rely on, you know, your partner saying, no, everything's fine. Absolutely go and get tested and talk to your GP about sleep and taking care of yourself. Use them as one of your check-in health professionals. Now, my GP is awesome. So not only does she manage my physical health, she also asks me how my moods are, if I'm dating again, how the kids are, etc. She really has been a key partner in my recovery journey. Now, number two talking to a trusted person. Now, ironically, it was my daughter who I hadn't planned on telling that was my first trusted person to help me. And it was only days after that I was able then to tell some of my best best friends. Now, this circle of incredible women and my healthcare professionals are a big reason why I'm so healthy and happy today. So the key point here is ask for the support you need from trusted people and trusted professionals. Now, like I said, around the fight, flight and freeze situation is that a symptom of that is that adrenaline is just coursing and pumping through your body. And there are two physical symptoms of this, not being hungry and not sleeping well. So my number three advice to you is I'm not going to force you to eat. All I'm going to say is try to eat. You are not eating because you are feeling physically sick. You are feeling nauseous. And I know how frustrating it is to be nagged about eating. So find some food that you can stomach and eat it in small amounts. Like I said, Vegemite was one of my absolute saviors. Another thing I would cut up apples into small little little slices and just have a few at a time. Anything that you can stomach that doesn't actually make you feel even sicker and very small amounts as well. And tell people, about your physical response, about feeling sick. I know they're, they're, you know, wanting the best for you and they're worried about you. So if you tell them, look, this is a symptom of the crisis time right now. It's a physical symptom. I know it will die down. 
And that will hopefully help them to worry less and nag you less. And also what they can do is, you know, instead of bringing you a huge tray of lasagna is maybe they might make you a sourdough muffin with a bit of Vegemite on, which is so much easier to to digest and you will be able to eat it in front of them. Now, number four is the other physical symptom, not being able to sleep. So again, what I would say is try to get sleep when you can. Your mind will be racing all the time. You will find it difficult to sleep. That's normal. However, you're going to need as much energy as you can get and be as rested as you can be. So what I would say is try things that will help you get to sleep. That was one of my main things is that, you know, I just couldn't actually drift off to sleep. Try things like meditation audios or music or even TV if that helps you relax. Reading, whatever it is, anything that can help take your mind away from your thoughts for a few minutes actually helps your brain just download a bit, just take a little bit easier and and usually this is successful in helping you get to sleep because you're exhausted. Now, I can't promise you you're going to stay asleep, but at least it's easier to get to sleep when you've got some of these these tools that you can use. Number five, have a good cry. Now, I do not like to cry around others. That's, you know, just me. Some people do, some people don't. So what I would say to you is if you don't like to cry around others like myself, find a place where no one will interrupt you or hear you and just let it all out as often as you need. And if you're in tune with your body enough, you will actually be able to feel the pressure of wanting to cry building up in your body and know when you have to release it. Now, if you can't get that time alone, if you can't leave young kids in the house alone or something like that, find a pillow to cry into when they've gone to bed. Now, the only way I found to be okay during the day and try and get on with normal life as much as possible is to know that I could have a release when I was alone. Number six, get some exercise. Now, I'm not saying go and do a 500-kilometer walk or cycle or anything. The thing about moving your body is that when your body moves and you exercise, it your body releases endorphins. Now, where um, adrenaline is the fight-or-flight response, endorphin is the happy, happy Um, pill basically um, and makes you actually feel better about things. So even if it's just a five minute walk around the block, you will feel better for moving your body. So get any type of form of exercise in any amounts that you can. Number seven, try to avoid alcohol, sleeping pills and other drugs. Now, you know, we would normally do that in normal life anyway. Um, But we tend to use them um, to help numb the pain as quick fixes. But unfortunately, they can also become crutches for you as well. Now, I'm not saying there weren't times when I did drink a little too much. Um, But as I said, I... There's, there's no judgment there. We're trying our best, but try and avoid regularly relying on drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. And again, guidance from your GP about sleeping pills can be useful. I'm not saying don't do them. I'm saying go to your GP and have a, have a very honest, open chat about if they would be useful for you. 
And again, this is where your trusted people can help you as well. You can say to them, look, I'm a bit worried about how much I'm drinking. Can you help me not do that when we're talking tonight? Something like that. Number eight, start writing things down. Now, everything that's going through your brain is just driving you crazy right now and you've just just got thousands of thoughts going through your brain. Now, when writing these things down, it doesn't need to be coherent and you may not think it's working, but I promise you it does. So neuroscience says, the science of the brain, has proven that writing things down helps you create order when your world feels like it's in chaos. It allows you to really understand what's going on with you and it can reveal your most private fears, thoughts and feelings, even things you'd never tell a best friend. You can be absolutely open and honest and write anything that you're, that's going on in your brain. So it gives you an outlet for these thoughts and feelings that otherwise you'd bottle up or be ashamed of or think no one else is thinking these or think it's a bad thing to think. It helps you feel your emotions rather than pushing them down and ignoring them. And all of those later questions like the pool build can be written down as well. So you don't have to think about them and you don't have to worry to remember them either. It's like a good declutter for those things. Another thing about number nine for me is also writing down. But this is specific around writing down your questions that you have of your partner. And you will have thousands. Why? who, how often, where, what did you do? Did you enjoy it more than with me? Are they more attractive than me? Whatever the questions are, write them down. You may or may not decide to take those questions to your cheating partner, but the good thing is you've got them out of your head and they're written down. Number 10. Don't make any major decisions just yet. You are highly emotional in this crisis mode. Your brain is thinking differently and it's not thinking from the rational part of your brain. We've already talked about that, that that is actually a physical and psychological fact at the moment is that you are not thinking from the rational part of your brain. So don't make any major decisions, decisions just yet. Number 11, avoid social media. And this is for two reasons. You will see everyone else's seemingly perfect lives going on and get really, really tense about it. And I remember seeing on social media someone celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary when mine was just coming up and I absolutely bawled my eyes out. So yeah, don't don't look at social media for for that reason alone because nobody is posting that their life is is going to well most people aren't posting the bad stuff they're they're posting all of the um, the best hits the greatest hits of their life at the moment and secondly you may be tempted to download onto it as well so don't post anything on a public forum about what's going on or how much you hate your husband or whatever is going on in your head right now because again you aren't thinking rationally and you may very well live to regret it, even if you delete it afterwards. So never write anything on social media, write it down in your journal instead, in your private thought journal. And last one, number 12, try distractions. Now you won't be interested at the moment in going to a play or a movie or reading a book or having a facial or a massage. It will all be too hard. So they may not work at all, but they may work a little 
and something might stick and you might find something that actually helps distract you from the trauma that you're going through right now. I found that messages, actually, sorry, messages, massages actually made me burst into tears, which isn't a bad thing because I obviously had to release that energy and that emotion. So I would say if you do get a facial or a massage or something similar, I would recommend that you advise your therapist that you're going through a tough time and this will probably make you cry, but that's okay. And they're helping you. And I promise you, it's not the first time it's happened to them. So every time I said that to a massage therapist, they said, I've heard it before. No worries. I've got you. So they're my 12 top tips for working with and dealing with and getting to the other side of the ruckus. So that's our show for today. Now, in future episodes, I'll be getting some infidelity survivors on to talk about their stories and how they've recovered. So I also welcome questions and feedback about anything we talk about what's come up for you today. There are any other tips around the ruckus that you would like to share with me or you would like to us to talk about anything else to do with infidelity and recovering from it. And you can contact me at podcast at infidelityandbeyond.com. So that and is the word podcast at infidelityandbeyond.com. I would love to hear from you. So until next week, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Infidelity and Beyond podcast. We're honoured we're a part of your recovery journey and remind you to seek help from friends, family and professionals when you need it.